Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And I guess you can tell that Ann's a little off today with the cold. Oh, dear. <clears throat> but we will soldier on. Yeah, we need some We need some good food and wine. Chicken soup is what Chicken I soup, okay. Uh, ch- ch- chicken soup's coming up tomorrow. Yeah, well, anyhow, about the, besides the chicken soup, we're going to be today's program, uh, dipping our toes into a little nostalgia, uh, starting with a fascinating book called Menus That Made History, very quirky book um, by these entertaining authors, Vincent Franklin and Alex Johnson, and what a good conversation we well, had. They, well, they, they live five doors apart right, <laughs> in St. Albans, just outside London, and they play snooker together. Right. But they came up with this idea, and we'll just let them explain it. Well, I have a number of questions here. I'm asking Vincent Franklin and Alex Johnson. Uh, questions that really have been rattling around in my head for years that I needed to have answered, such as, what did Elvis and Priscilla Presley have for their wedding breakfast? <laughs> You think that's a joke, but here is this book, listeners, Menus That Made History, which includes over 2,000 years of menus from the ancient Egyptians providing food for the afterlife to, actually, the said breakfast dinner at the Presley's. Tell us a little bit about your background. Let's start with that. Vincent, you're an actor. I am, sadly. I try not to be, but it's sadly, I am. You're right. Uh-huh. No, I, 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 he- I heard that you were, uh, once upon a time, you were on the Office program? I did, yes. I was in the English version of the Office, which is the, uh, with Ricky Gervais, uh, when he started out over here. It was a, a series that, that uh, spawned a thousand imitators, and then eventually he took it um, across the, the pond and, and did an American version. Right. But yeah, I was, uh, I was the, the very first one of those. I did all of those BBC comedies where we pretend we're not acting. <laughs> um, uh, we pretend we're making it up, but actually it usually begins with a really rather brilliant script. In this case, Ricky Gervais's rather brilliant script. Well, ap- apparently he he was on an award show last night. What was it? The, what was it? The Golden Globes. The Golden Globes. Apparently he did the Globes, doesn't he? He does the Globes. He's done them the last few years. He said this um, would I think be last his year. Last. He was very cheeky, and it yeah. may be his last year. Well, that's what happened. <laughs> I, I, understand I, I'm it. sorry. I just I can't accommodate anybody who makes a nasty crack about Dame Judith Bent. <laughs> well, yeah, over here she's a she's really actually we see her as actually more significant than the Queen. It kind of goes the Queen, Judy Dent, yeah. Olivia Coleman in that yeah. order. <laughs> Okay, no. Okay, no. Alex, tell us about who you are. You know, you missed Helen Mirren uh, out. Uh, well, um, I'm a journalist and a writer. Um, I trained in uh, writing in newspapers and magazines. Uh, then in the last um, few years, I've been concentrating more on uh, writing books and doing kind of proper writing, uh, which I, I enjoy a lot of. Um, so this, will, this is my uh, ninth book. Um, and uh, I'm hopefully going to carry on doing that, as well as bits and bobs of journalism. Great. So where did this idea come from? Well, um, it was it was uh, my idea, actually, uh, uh, which is bizarre, because I'm the stupid one of this, of this <laughs> pair of writers. Um, I, I was brought up in a cafe. My dad had a cafe in, uh, in Howarth, the home of the Bronte sisters in West Yorkshire. So yeah, I was brought up with menus that my dad used to... 
type up on an old Olivetti typewriter. <laughs> and, I, and that was at a time when, of course, you know, in, in England, a very small glass of orange juice was considered a starter. Um, and so you're very aware that the food we eat says a lot about the world we live in. In 1970s uh, England, orange juice was a, a, was a really extravagant, extraordinary thing, and you had a tiny glass of it. And you find out a huge amount about the societies that we, the society we live in, from the food we eat to how we celebrate, how we get around the table with friends. So I thought it would be really interesting if we got a load of menus some of them really big, extravagant menus from Wellington after Waterloo or coronation banquets, right through to very ordinary menus like fish and chips, which is the kind of national dish over here. Look at those menus and write an essay about each one, just giving them a bit of sort of social context, finding a story really that's hidden in these lists of food. And as I didn't feel I would ever complete it if I did it on my own, I spoke to my friend and snooker buddy, uh, Alex here, um, who, rather than I, what I thought he'd say is that's a ridiculous idea, nobody would ever want that book. But on the contrary, he bit my hand off, and a few weeks later, we found somebody who was foolish enough to even publish it. Uh, so we set about it, and uh, yeah, that's how it happened. It's, it's really funny, and you may not be old enough to remember, but, but orange juice and cod liver oil were, were actually rationed items, but every child got some because it was considered important nutrition in the in the years right after right during and after the second world war when foodstuffs That's in general right. and were in fact one of the things my mother was a midwife and one of the things that also I discovered was available on the national health service over here for pregnant mothers was guinness guinness irish stout oh, yeah, because of the iron good. levels in stout my mum my was prescribed and other young mothers in the 1950s and 60s were were prescribed stout by their doctors it's quite extraordinary what was, uh, was and wasn't on the ration. And interestingly, fish and chips, which we talk about in the book, oh, yeah, uh, was about felt that. so important to the British culture that they never put fish and chips on the ration, even at the height of the war. While there may have only been a little bit of fish available, you may have been eating mainly batter. Nonetheless, Churchill and the war, and the, the war cabinet felt that it was so important to the kind of morale of the nation that they could never allow fish and chips to be rationed. I, I think this is why the book works so well, really, that as soon as you start talking about food and recipes and menus, what you're actually talking about is the stories behind the food. Um, and that's what we were really trying to do here with the book. It's, in a sense, it's, it's not a book about food. It's a book about people and people's lives and you know, how food shows what things mean to them and what's important. That's oh, sort you, of what we aim for with the program, to be honest with you. Yeah, and, and, there, and there's some, there are some really interesting combinations, like you have Captain Robert Falcon Scott's last dinner on the way to the South Pole. Yeah, and, 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 then, and then you also report on the fact that the man who got there first, the Norwegian guy who got there first, had a, a much simpler menu, and that enabled him to get there and be on his way home while Scott was still figuring out how to get there. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, they have very different, very different approaches generally. So while Captain Scott's lot, um, they often had little treats and things like Christmas, bits of Christmas pudding, there weren't any of those kind of treats in Amundsen's rations. And, and Scott basically um, got all his menus totally wrong, and he, he, um, he had a, a very high-protein diet, but he should have had a much higher-fat diet. And he was lacking some of the vitamins, like vitamin B. His rations ran out a bit faster than, than he'd planned, which meant they were, you know, they were literally starving. 
but, um, but, but while Amundsen was, was much better prepared. I mean, he had special brown bread made, and, you know, he used to eat seals and things like that. He was... The, the, the food tells you all about the two men and, and why one was successful and, and one sadly wasn't. Well, the, the, the big deal, I, as I understand it, my recollection from reading about it when I was a child, is that Amundsen had dogs and Scott didn't have, didn't have dogs. His, his guys pulled yes, the sleds so I think, themselves. I mean, there are various reasons there. I mean, there's all kinds of things. It's, uh, it was a, definitely two different men having very different approaches. Let's back up a bit. I'm, I'm not going to forget about the fish and chips, but back up to, I mean, some of these are kind of wacky, <laughs> the menus you've got. I mean, there's some fairly obvious ones, like um, the, the Last Supper, you know, that would be of interest. How did you select these menus? Well, we, we wanted to make it as international as possible. Um, because we didn't want to just focus, I mean, we're, we're both uh, English, but we didn't want to be too insular and little Englander about it. We wanted to make it appeal to as many people as possible. Uh, we wanted to have lots of different styles, so we've got breakfasts and lunches and dinners. And we also wanted to cover the whole range of history as far as is possible in a, in a smallish book. So we go back, you know, kind of 20,000, 30,000 years, and we also look forward to this kind of menus that we might be eating in the future, some of the things that IKEA have recommended, like um, bugless, bug, bug burgers and uh, meatless hot dogs and things like this. Um, so it was. I think the idea was partly to to make it wide ranging, and also just for our own entertainment, we wanted to do quite a variety of things that we were both interested in. Yeah, and I think also making sure we had menus that had a really good story. We, we rejected menus that might have had sort of interesting food on them, but they were a little bit like another menu. They, you know, every, every uh, 19th century menu um, has turtle soup or mock turtle soup, yeah. depending on whether you're a proper posh or a bit middle class. <laughs> and uh, so we, while we wanted to write about mock turtle soup, we, did, we could have just filled a book, really, with 19th century menus from gentlemen's clubs all having mock turtle soup. So we wanted to, to find a, a historic spread and also to find the menus that had really, really good stories behind them. So the fact that, uh, for instance, that, that the Duke of Wellington, famous for his victory over the French and the, great, the greatest English uh, sort of military hero since Agincourt, um, was actually a massive uh, Francophile, had trained in France and loved all things French, was a French speaker, and in fact had a French chef yeah, prepared the food for his victory banquet over the French. That just felt like a, a really, really good story. Yeah, good really story. irrespective of whether, what the, you know, of what food was served. So while there are some menus in here that have also recipes attached, uh, we really did choose the ones that, that we felt had personality and zing about them. And we rejected some really interesting menus, including those from British Rail over here, which is the, you know, the British Rail over here was a famously dreary way of getting around the country on trains, made even more dreary by the terrible sandwiches they served. <laughs> but we got, we got rid of those menus because their story wasn't as good, whereas the story about the menus on the Orient Express, much more exciting. Now, it's, in, it's interesting you should say that, because when, when, I, when I started my career in London, my parents were still in Yorkshire, and they, in fact, they still are. But I used to take the Yorkshire Pullman on Friday afternoon and, and ride it to Wakefield where my mother would pick me up and, dri and drive me back to my ancestral home. 
and I used to indulge in a half bottle of Grave French wine <laughs> and, and, eat, and eat my Pullman dinner. And by the time I had done that, I was almost home. So it's funny, the, the food there was much more like the food on the Orient Express. And not at all, not at all like... Yeah, but like everything else, they're eliminating the dining cars on railroads. <laughs> yeah, well, they did that too, Unfortunately, because that was my first exposure to things like finger bowls. But, but here, here's, here's the thing that I think has interested me most. How did you get the quantities? Because some of, the, some of these people ate prodigious quantities of food. And I, I'm wondering... The idea of a menu that's sort of propped up on the table next to the, you know, the tomato sauce bottle and the salt and, and, and pepper, is a, it really didn't arrive until the Victorians. So for quite a lot of these menus, we've relied not only on printed material that was produced at the time as, you know, as what we would call a menu now, but also things like lists uh, that were produced for the kitchen or accounts from diaries um, and... That's where we get a lot of the quantities because, of course, as soon as you're getting instructions for kitchens, you can find out not only what they ate, but how much of it they ate. So when you look at something like the coronation banquet of uh, George IV, which is one of the most extravagant and ridiculous banquets in British history, um, the, the volume of food is just ridiculous. And, of course, there's another story in that, which is it was so ridiculous and so unpopular at a time when there was bread riots in the industrial towns of the north of England. People were starving to death after the Napoleonic Wars, and he was spending all this money on ridiculous amounts of food. But that also his brother, who took over from him when he died uh, a few years later, said, right, no banquet. We're not going to have a banquet because it was so unpopular and so unnecessarily extravagant. And there's never been a banquet to celebrate an English monarch ascending the throne ever since. So, you know, in that ridiculous extravagance, you see not only the amazing wealth and opulence of that time, but it also tells you how pendulums swing and that in response to that opulence, his brother said, we're going we're to have a nice, quiet evening in. Um, so, yeah, so like all of these, there is an, it is amazing how much food people had and, of course, how much they wasted. Uh, though I suspect there were quite a lot of people in the kitchens who ate very well afterwards. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure there were. I, I, I thought it was interesting. You, you talk about lions' corner houses, and, oh, yeah, and, I, like and I asked my wife, did she remember seeing a, a lions' corner house when she was in England for the first time in the nineteen fifties? No, sixties. Sixties, and, and she couldn't remember. But, but I heard something that disturbed me just the other day. I think I heard it correctly. That they are closing up, or they're closing. Oh, they- I'm afraid they've gone. They've yeah, gone. It's really interesting. I wrote that essay, actually, and I knew about Lyons Corner Houses, and I found that menu, and I thought how kind of kitsch it was and how sort of uh, uh, silly and a bit uh, and affected it was. And I started researching it, and I spoke to lots of people who'd lived in London in the 50s and the 60s, and every single one of them told me a glorious story about how important it had been to them, including uh, Mike Lee, a, a, a film director I worked with a lot, who said when he was at drama school at the Royal Academy, um, everybody worked in them, you know, and they were really uh, little bright gems in the middle of London that were as London as, you know, as black cabs and, and, and red buses, that anyone visiting London, everybody had a story, and everybody I spoke to also remembers being taken there as a treat as a child on the way to the zoo or on a first date. And in the end, the essay I wrote about the Lion's Corner Houses 
which I thought was going to be a sort of mickey-taking snigger at them, ended up being a sort of uh, eulogy, really, to this uh, glorious little uh, bit of Englishness that was uh, a time after the war when, you know, we were still surrounded by bomb sites, was trying desperately to bring a little bit of glamour for the working people of London. And, and of course, all of those coffee houses also massively important uh, you know, years previous to that in the, 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 franchise, the, the enfranchisement of women, you know, um, that it was a place, the coffee houses, uh, the, the little cafes that, that grew up in the early years of the 20th century were places where middle-class women could meet socially with other women in a way that the men could meet in pubs or in their clubs, which women didn't have. So these coffee houses, like Lions, had a huge part to play in our history, not just uh, as nice places to go when you were in, in London on holiday, but actually they were the, uh, the, the, the bedrock meeting place um, of the women who would uh, win themselves the vote in the 1920s. Now let's get au courant, because I'm, I'm guessing that those of our listeners who are... Well, can fine, I ask something? Of course you can. I want to say that, that this book does not limit the menus to real-life situations. Um, they have... Um, Dr. Seuss, green eggs and ham. They have my favorite, Ratty's Picnics. <laughs> when did the wall is? <laughs> and uh, and some other things like that, like um, not quite, well, Babette's Feast, which is probably the most famous movie dinner scene. Um, and, and then all kinds of weird things like your prisms. And, and the uh, concentration camp menus and things. It's wild. <laughs> I, I think that comes back to really the idea that, I mean, as, as a journalist, I, I'm very interested in stories, and as an actor, um, um, Vince is very interested in, in you know, what, what motivates people and, and the stories behind people as well. So, as we said before, it's really a, a case of that the menus are something that, it explains part of life and, and tell a story because they, all those ones that you mentioned, uh, Vince and I uh, smile at each other because they're our favourites as well because they, they are, as he said, something that adds a little bit of a spice to the story uh, and gives you something to think about at the end of the day. Yeah. Now let's check out the, the final menu at El Bulli. Yeah. In, I've in, eaten uh, some of those dishes, by the way. Yeah. And well, I, I looked... I looked to make sure that your most favourite dish was there. Ha ha. Which one? The one with the, the golden oh, egg. Oh, the golden egg. <laughs> no, my wife bit. She didn't get instructions on this course, so, I so did, she but got I the egg. So, <laughs> so she she bit into it and promptly deposited half of it on the on the only dinner time dress, dress that she had <laughs> for a two week. For a That's two an week. expensive buy to eat. That is. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was an expensive buy to eat it as well. Yeah. So, but that's interesting. The, the whole Abuli phenomenon is interesting. And, and the other thing that I was interested in is um, we, we happen to know Lydia Bastianich pretty well. And, um, and you have Pope Francis's New York dinner. And we actually talked to her about why she chose the menu items for that. The, the, other, thing, right. the other thing that was really cheeky is, is that she sees the wines that were served were wines from her vineyards. Yeah. <laughs> they were, weren't they? Because, yes, because her uh, son, I think, isn't he, runs the vineyard. I think yes, it's her son. I could be, uh, yeah. be wrong. Jo- we spoke, jo- actually, uh, uh, just before Christmas to uh, a radio station in New York, and uh, the woman that interviewed us there was, 
was really angry about that menu in a, in a really good way. As a proper New Yorker, she was saying, why are we serving, you know, Italian food when it comes to New York? We should be having a, a salt beef sandwich on rye. <laughs> and, um, uh, um, and I think there's a, there's a, it's what's glorious about it, of course, is that she's a Croatian, but I mean, Croatian-Italian, isn't she? So it's a brilliant mix of, of food. But for a, a, a Pope who is famously um, uh, lives quite a humble and simple, simple sort of lifestyle of, you know, a bit of chicken and some salad when he's back at the Vatican, to arrive in New York to some of the richest food on the planet. I'm not quite sure how well his, his stomach will have, will have uh, taken to it. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty rich diet he was given for those few days. Apparently, apparently he came back a second time and he, he asked for her to cook for him again. <laughs> yeah. well, and she's cooked. Uh, she's cooked for all the popes, the, the, the previous pope as well. She, yeah, she, she, if I ever go there, I'm going to. I'm des- desperately going to uh, uh, visit, uh, try and visit her, her restaurant. Cause I've got to say, as uh, uh, as, a, as a menu goes, um, I don't think you could w- uh, wish for uh, you know wish for something better. The um, her, her, some of her pasta dishes look absolutely extraordinary, but also she does that really brilliant thing of uh, I think of, of it being. Um, uh, very, very Italian, but it has a fantastic kind of uh, New World uh, twist to her cooking. Um, but, but, I, but I don't say that when you're in New York. They were very cross with us on the radio station, well, cross with her on the radio station, that there wasn't a little bit more uh, pastrami. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Anyhow, listeners, um, and, and, and Vincent and Alex, um, this is a book that makes you smile, and you learn a lot, too. Um, called Menus That Made History. And they, you, you two have a collective imagination and creative drive. They're just amazing. So it's well worth a read of this book, Menus That Made History. Um, thank you for writing it. Thank you for talking to us about it. Lovely. Thank you very much for inviting us on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, I think we covered it more or less, huh? Hold on a second. Uh, yes, it was very good. Yes, yeah, that's great. Good. Thank all, you. All right, Charlie. Nice to talk to you both. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, here we are again, and we're going to be talking to the Queen of Southern Cuisine. That's as deemed by Southern Living Magazine. Um, this is no other than Natalie Dupre, uh, who won this 2019 the IACP. That's the International Association of Culinary Professionals, the Lifetime Achievement Award. And what a life and what achievements she's had. Uh, she's cooked in restaurants. Uh, she's uh, written books. Uh, she's taught cooking as an she, instructor. She, 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 she even ran for she Senate. She ran for Senate. She's, <laughs> she's Southern through and through. She is. And, and we, we asked her in the middle of the interview, you, you won't want to miss this one. We said, why, why were you put in charge of the Charleston? South Carolina Food and Wine Festival, and she said, "No, no one else would touch it." 
Well, Natalie Dupre, we've known her for quite a long time, and we're happy to talk to her this time about her most recent book called Favorite Stories and Recipes, and this is by a veteran storyteller, listeners. You know that, listeners, you know, listeners around the world, that on the menu is on the ball and lots and lots of things. So we decided it was time to bring you the, uh, a, a poll on... This a pre a election poll from South Carolina. <laughs> Nat- Natalie, what's the answer going to be from the electors down there? Well, uh, you know, I think um, uh, Joe Biden is very beloved in this state. Yeah, he is. I know. And uh, he's uh, he's a little old for my taste. I'm I'm not really in favor of old white men and even some <laughs> old white women. I just think that's a mistake. I think yeah, we need a, a two-term president and um, to get all the things that have been gone done wrong in three years. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, you know, we, we haven't really introduced you yet. <laughs> Listeners, oh. we're talking to Natalie Dupre. Her <laughs> new book, uh, this is what, number 14? Well, yeah, I think it depends on how you count, but I'm mostly calling it 14. It's called, uh, it's Favorite Stories and Recipes. Right. um, Yeah, and and for those who don't know, um, Natalie is called the Queen of Southern Cuisine. She's won every single award that you could think of, including this biggie where you are the, the... 2019, you won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the uh, IACP, the National Association of Culinary Professionals. Um, you, you co-founded just about everything we we love right now, including <laughs> the Charleston Food Wine Festival and the uh, Southern uh, Foodways. And well, anyhow, I thought that I I knew you really well, but actually. I've known you for a very long time, but reading this, I realized I didn't know you very well. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> and what well, it is, particular. because you, 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 of course, this is what we have now. I've discovered with um, the, these, the new, the latest style cookbook um, merges personal stories, memoirs, uh, with not only the recipes and cooking instructions, but very personal tapes on everything, and you have a lot of personal information in this book. I do. I, I, uh, um, someone said to me recently, Ann Byrne, who has this wonderful I love book Anne out Byrne, on iron cooking. Yeah, uh, I love her. She's swell. Yeah, she's one of my good friends, and she, she said to me that her agent had said that people write memoirs if they think they have something to say. And I guess I I didn't quite do a memoir, but I I've had these things to say for some time, and uh, part of it is that, uh, in a subtle way, is that I didn't have an easy life as a child. Yeah, but I was surprised about that. I really I didn't know it was so extreme. Yeah, and and yet, you know, my life is wonderful, and I guess I I do want to give some. Some hope to someone that you could write fourteen books if you had a lot of turmoil in your life uh-huh. uh, in the early days. Because certainly now I have this 
this settled and happy life. But I think that's what made me a catalyst. You know, I didn't. I was always looking for change and for, you know, to make the world a better place. So that was what I. I guess that's what part of this is. Well, it's. I mean, the stories themselves are just fascinating. And, and and I must say that you've never been exactly a shrinking violet. <laughs> no. <laughs> and you're quite outspoken and opinionated on a lot of subjects, and they come through in the essays. <laughs> well, I did run for Senate, you know. Uh-huh. No, we didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, okay. I ran for U.S. Senate against... Uh, Actually, I remember that now that you mentioned it. Yeah, 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 against Senator uh, Jim DeMint. Okay. Uh, yeah, but but I am opinionated, um, but I still like Southern cooking as well. Now, how did and, you manage to change Charleston? Charleston, when you go there, it just seems like it would never change. Right. And yet you changed it. Well, yeah, I mean, when I became, I guess I was founding chairman of the Food and Wine Festival, uh, mainly because they didn't have anyone else that would do it. <laughs> That's how a lot of us got these assignments. <laughs> yeah. And because I saw the potential, um, you know, I said to the chefs in the first meeting, you just don't understand how this is going to change Charleston, you oh, know. That's and, true. And it really has. Uh, it, uh, but we were talking about the joy of cooking, and I know I should be talking about my book, but... I did just get the joy of cooking, and one of the things that shocked me was um, that it doesn't have as much, say, southern cooking as it does uh, Japanese and right. Indian and a, a lot of other forms of cooking. Yeah, especially since uh, it was originally, uh, what, what city was it, Nashville? No. Well, no, it's the Midwest, I think, somewhere. Oh, yeah, I thought it was. Yeah, I don't remember. I thought it was writing in the South, I forgot. Uh, Well, I mean, so much has been written about Southern food. It's really, yeah, I don't know why Um, there's not much in it. No. I I really, I don't know how anybody could just sort of read through it. It's such a big book, but, um, yeah, but it's so modern. I mean, there's so much involved. And we just got a lot of these appliances, you know, the um, like the, the multi-cooker and um, programmable this and that and the other. And it's like learning to cook all over again. So they devote a whole bunch of uh, uh, space You know, to that's that. exactly what I was thinking. I was thinking this book is about learning how to cook all over again. Yes, that's true. It, and uh, I suppose that I'm just going to be stuck uh, in in another uh, world, a world of where you do it yourself and and you enjoy the process and you're happy snapping beans still yeah. on occasion. You talk of that. Yeah, you've you've had a lot of little adventures in your life. I didn't realize how much time you spent overseas. Actually, right. Oh well. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it, my life was a has been happenstance. Uh-huh. And my favorite former husband got a job in uh, in London, um, and so I went with him. I, of course, I couldn't work. So I stumbled into the Cordon Bleu, and yes. um, 
and then from there we we had to uh, avoid a two tax situation. So we had to stay out of the U.S. for a certain number of months, and so we went to Majorca, and yeah. someone in a bathing suit, two women in bathing suits from New York, two junior leaguers, asked me to uh, become chef of their restaurant. The French chef had quit because he couldn't find anyone to date. Uh, <laughs> It was still the era when the Spanish women locked up their daughters. I remember it. Well, I was there. <laughs> yeah. they, they locked her up, too. Yeah, oh, yes, right. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so so uh, cooking in Mallorca was terrific. You know, I flunked high school Spanish and French because, uh, well, not exactly flunked, but, you know, I just slid by uh, because I knew I would never need it. Oh. And then where did I wind up? Mallorca, where they, <laughs> you know, they have this crazy patois. And so, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's the wages. Most of my life has been the wages of sin, you know, one way or the other. <laughs> so. well, yeah, I kept trying to figure out uh, which man you were talking about when you were writing these, the, the, like, way to a man's heart and... And what was the other one with the duck? You know? <laughs> that well, was a funny story. That was that very was the funny. same man. That was the same man. Was it? Okay. <laughs> but yes. now it's different. Yes, now it's different. Now I have this nice, settled man that I'm married to, um, and uh, uh, who is also a southerner and who likes my cooking like it is. Uh, and... Uh, is not fond of Japanese food or Indian food. So, although I had done it more in my youth, I'm I'm not I'm sort of sticking to to regular meals right now. What well, we you call these call regular. regular? I'm looking at your chocolate snowball cake. Is that gorgeous or what? Oh, it's just so good. It's, it's just so good, and it is gluten free. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, oh, that, that, oh, that's that's a relief. Yeah, I knew you'd be happy about that. I mean, in fact, it's not. That's the whole reason it's not fattening, because it has no flour in it. Uh huh. Well, it has like, you know, five pounds of butter. <laughs> which which is the restaurant where the where the guy makes coconut cake? Oh, oh right. that's in Charleston. Yeah, it's in Charleston. Yeah. Right, right. Yes. Oh, yeah. Plant or something or other, right? No, uh, the one, the co- coconut cake, Bob Carter. Bob yeah, that's Carter, the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, Is he, he still going? We were, we, we were there, and we ate everything. And right. They, and then, <laughs> and they presented, and they presented us with a piece of coconut cake that weighed at least a pound. Yes. So, so we, so we gave it to the front office staff at the hotel. And they loved it. And they were very happy. They were thrilled. <laughs> yeah, we're not up to date so much on the, we, we, I remember the second, year that the Food and Wine Festival was on, and we were there covering it, and it flooded the tent. Do you remember that? Oh, how could I forget? I was chairman. I walked in, and and the night before, all the tables had floated. Uh, That was before we learned to put a flooring down. We had a lot of 
it was you know, good. I've made all, learned everything I've learned the hard way, which, you know, makes the better impression on you. I'm all for people making mistakes, but that was a particularly disastrous one. Yeah, I remember this on, woman with these stilettos, some yeah. really probably $2,000 shoes, hopped her ankles in mud in the tent. <laughs> I heard this story that was a conspiracy organized by all the shoe merchants on King Street. <laughs> yeah, right. that's, that's it. That's it. That's uh, it. So then, a woman, a young woman, has come out with Charleston shoes that are waterproof. Oh, really? How cute! <laughs> that's very cute. That wasn't why, but she, she probably, she probably but should they say. Are. You can wash them. Yeah, I have shoes on. They're wool. They're made up in New Zealand out of wool, and you can wash them in the um, in the washing machine. They call, right. They're called all birds. The, co- the clothes, the clothes washing machine. Right. No, the shoes. But you are... can watch. Uh, you can wash collard greens and turnip greens in the washing machine too. You have to want to have a lot of them, right? <laughs> you can't do them together. But if you put the uh, the greens in a uh, in a uh, pillowcase oh, and put them cool. in the washing machine, they do very well. I, I'll put that. I'll tuck it away in my memory along with the recipe for cooking your roast chicken on your radiator in your car. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was a salmon. (laughs) Maybe it was a salmon. (laughs) Anyhow, but your your food is, I I call it really very honest food. I'm now looking at, of course, your cover. You hit on my favorite food of the whole world is potatoes, especially mashed potatoes with all that butter. And, uh, yeah, and, and I'm looking at a recipe for new potatoes with mustard seed. So you, you've rather, uh, your recipes are simple, but they're, they're fresh. Yes, I, I like to think that. That's the way I think of myself as a, as a doable cook. But I, but I use what's around me and what's, what's tasty. Gosh, there's nothing better, you know, than a new potato, particularly if you can get, to a farm stand uh, and and dig it up or have just dug up ones. There, there's nothing like them. Um, but even then, these small potatoes that we get now are are so tasty. Oh, yeah. And um, and you have to st- roast them, and then you find some something to put on them every once in a while, so that whoever you're feeding doesn't think that you're monotonous, and you can make <laughs> you can pop them up with with um, Rosemary, or those, I love those mustard seeds, yeah, and, I uh, too. I like yeah. Too, though, yeah, I think, I think food has to be doable by the home cook, because that is who's doing most of the cooking, mm-hmm. uh, in that sense, uh, restaurants are doing, they do quantity cooking, but not many people are doing small, small batch cooking, and that's the way to learn. So and that's to really, your intended audience for this. And that's certainly who I appeal to, well, yeah. Uh, here's, here's one off the wall for you. We're having, oh. chicken, we're having chicken thighs for tonight. Oh, well, well I'm all what, for what's, chicken what's, thighs. What's, what's, what's your recipe for chicken thighs? Oh, gee, I would just... Uh, my favorite chicken thigh recipe is... I don't think it's in this book, but it's... Uh, my son-in-law and I did it uh, originally. We you just chop up a lot of onions, and then you add uh, the, the thighs and the and, uh, 
fair, fair number of thighs. I mean, I have all this written down in a book somewhere. And then you cover it with a little uh, liquid and um, put, put the lid on, and then halfway through you, you add saffron and preserved lemon. Oh, I love preserved lemon. And then you take the chicken out and you boil everything else down with some green olives and saffron and pres- preserved lemon rind. It's really, that's really my favorite thigh recipe. That's, I, that's exactly my kind of recipe. Yes, I love it. See, I'm going yeah, to take the easy way out. I, I have a spice that somebody sent me called, called Carolina Dirt. <laughs> so, so, so we start with with dried Carolina dirt, dirt, and then then in the finishing stages we apply Stubbs barbecue sauce from Texas. <laughs> well, it sounds like a gumbo ishy. And it's it's re- it's really the nice part about it is it really doesn't take any thought, and it only takes about fifteen minutes. Right, but don't don't people have to live that way? I mean, when you're feeding a family, you either you either have to have it cook a long time where you can start it maybe the night before or cook it the night before while you're cooking dinner so that you can reheat it. It's the kind of a dish that you can reheat. Or it has to be something you can cook short. Yep, you're right. There's not sort of a middling way of feed, a middling time way of feeding your family um, because that that just takes a little longer than people are able to wait by the time you get home. The cooker is so important. Um, you know, food is a control issue. Okay, and you, and whoever you, controls the food, whether it's the anorexic... story. <laughs> I'm sorry? That's your duck story. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is my duck story. Uh, well, that was the one where my beau and I uh, went out to eat and he ordered ahead. I don't really like people to order for me. And he ordered me the duck, and it was just not cooked well. It was a whole duck. And yeah. and as I cut into the duck, this was a relationship that was at its end. <laughs> the duck sort of flew across the table and <laughs> rolled down his starched white shirt. <laughs> and he, he actually stormed out and thought I had done it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Which I might have done if you had thought of it. <laughs> if I had thought of it, but anyway, I mean, people should know how to roast a duck. In fact, I'm going to do one uh, for the paper next week, just because I think it's important to know how to roast a duck. Every right. once in a while, you want one. So yeah, Peter mastered cooking a goose on the um, outside grill. Oh, really? Yeah, well, that's a lot of fat. On Christmas Day, that's Natalie. A, yeah, I really? Know, it was so much work. I mean, I had to get a lot of fat out before he set the whole neighborhood yes. on fire. You know? Well, that's just it. Actually, I had a friend that did burn up her mother's house rendering <laughs> goose fat. Well, it was really not a good thing to do. Well, you, and, you actually see everybody, you, everybody you see a, a, a bit with them. You know, punctured and so forth, and then one of these Chinese steamer pots, and oh. yeah, and and the, the grease, most of the grease comes out. And, and so then, then you, you put it on the grill. Yeah. yeah, and then you then you put it on the grill, but and not all of that, but most. I mean, the big quantities that you but, know you but, get. But here's the here's the interesting part of the story. 
because everybody thinks that in the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, Tiny Tim had turkey for Christmas. But that's not true, because turkey, turkeys hadn't been invented right. yet. No, he had goose. Yes, Everyone knows that. Didn't he cry yes, the goose for goose? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That. So, yeah. So, so, so listeners, get a goose for Christmas this year, and all the, all the turkeys can be allowed to escape. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Well, you there. know, goose is so much better tasting the turkey. Uh, yeah. uh, the problem is that goose doesn't feed very many people, maybe six. Yeah. No, I, I, I remember thinking, as I'm cooking this and I'm seeing all the fat come off, how much I paid for every pound of that. <laughs> <laughs> right, but then, but then if you have good goose fat, yes. oh my gosh, you can... You can roast your potatoes in it. Oh, oh yes. sure, yeah, absolutely. We did that. We did that. I'm sure. Well, you're yeah. making me hungry, Natalie, as your whole book does. Listeners, uh, <laughs> again, it's, it's Natalie Dupre's favorite stories and recipes, and and I mean, you're not only going to love the 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 recipes and the food itself, you're also going to love all the stories that she tells because Natalie is one of the best storytellers I know. Well, what a nice person you are, Anne. Well, I like you. You know that. <laughs> so long. So, I, I wish you much success for this book, as you've had with all your other um, 13 books. And, it, and, it's, and it's, time, it's time for you to invite us to the Charleston Food and Wine Festival. Oh, I am ready for you to come. They won't let me do much... Uh, of the directing, you know, founders are not good directors, well, not you know, good maintainers. We got displaced by the Today Show. So. Oh well, there we are. <laughs> well, they're probably not going to come back anytime soon, you know. So, <laughs> so well, I'll put your uh, I'll put your name in the hat. Uh, I do want to say that when I ran for Senate and and did lose ignominiously, but nonetheless had my head high. Uh, I did say that I was going to cook my the other candidate's goose. <laughs> there you go. Good, well, good, good. well, we we got we got to let you go because we get more excitement for our listeners coming up next. But in the meantime, thank you so much for your contribution to On Demand Radio, and be well. It's good to be here, and you too, Peter. Bye bye. Bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and for our final segment, we're going to be talking to Adam Ariche. Um, who's a Philadelphia-based freelance writer, and he's had, thank you, a very successful career as a freelance food writer. And um, he, he just f- finished, well, two books, but we're going to be talking about one of them. It's called Dinner at the Club. Now, I've never been there, but he's promised that next time I'm in Philadelphia, he'll get me in for a visit. And it, it's a great story about a, a great tradition in Philadelphia. So here's Adam Ariche, um, dinner at the club. Well, it seems like I've known Adam Ariche for a long time. <laughs> uh, Adam's years, I think it has been. Um, and I was so pleased to see your book, which you co-wrote with uh, Joey Baldino, uh, called Dinner at the Club. And I lived for seven years in Philadelphia, shopping in the Ninth Street Market, had a restaurant at 2nd and South Street, 
I never heard of the Polizzi Social Club. Tell us a little bit about the history of this club. So the history of, of the Polizzi Social Club is that in, in the early 1900s, a group of immigrants from the town of Vasto, which is in the region of Abruzzo, uh, on the eastern coast of Italy by the sea, they came to America and they formed this organization. And the purpose of it was not only a place to hang out and have fun, it also functioned very much like a, uh, almost like a union. Um, you know, the membership dues helped pay for things, uh, like if somebody's kid got sick or if there were hospital bills or. Yeah, I thought that um, was wonderful when I read about that. Yeah. I know. It's, you know, we're, you know, I'm not used to thinking about these organizations in that way, you know, I've, I've grown up in South Philly, so I've always been aware of, of these clubs, even though there's very few that are open. Mm-hmm. But to, to kind of learn the history and, and understand that they were, like, really vital um, for these immigrant communities, you know, in the early 1900s is, was pretty interesting uh, to me. So It's funny, you know, Adam. We've actually, we've yeah. actually, I, I realize the name Vasto was familiar to me, and now I realize we were actually there. Really? Yeah, I think there was a parade going on. (laughs) Okay, that sounds fun. I guess they have a lot of parades in that part of the world. Sure. So go ahead, Um, so take it from there. I I didn't realize the extent of the whole, it's like the central nervous system of a whole immigrant population, right? Yeah, absolutely true. Um, And Belize, when it first opened, was, was only for immigrants from this one town. And then as time went on, you know, they grew to be to uh, open up membership to anybody who was from Abruzzo, and then it was Southern Italians, and then it was all Italian Americans. So it kind of grew. And then women. Don't forget, they eventually opened to women. <laughs> and then women, yeah. Women, I think women came last, unfortunately. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Um, well, this is in Italy. <laughs> go ahead. No, so, yes. Yeah, so then uh, eventually... You know, kind of following the upward mobility and kind of emergence into the middle class of Italian Americans in the second half of the of the 20th century, you know, uh, an institution like this became a little less vital in terms of the services that you know it supplied to to this community. You know, it didn't. You know, these people didn't need their friends to necessarily pitch in to pay their medical bills or pay for funerals and things like that. You know, these were mostly middle class people at this time and. You know, first-generation Americans and second-generation Americans, you know, these are people who went on to be lawyers and doctors and, you know, white-collar professionals as well as people who were in blue-collar jobs. So kind of the the social need um, was kind of all that Polizzi served. Uh, mm-hmm. And as people also moved out into the suburbs with white flight in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know, there weren't as many people who were living here in this community. So it just kind of went into the decline uh, because just it wasn't being used as much. And this is all from what Joey has told me uh, about the, the history of the club. I, I could and, see that happening with the Ninth uh, Street Market before I moved out of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was opening I mean, up to the whole new... Yeah, it's not as vibrant as it... It was not. It, it was not as vibrant it as it used to be. different immigrant communities, not Italian, actually. But, Joey, was, sure. it, was it always... Was it always a an eating and drinking establishment as well. Yeah, so food and drinking were definitely a part of of the club. Um, you know, there was uh, a time that it was open during prohibition, so I mean, legally people weren't drinking there. I don't think, but 
Uh, I'm sure they were, they were pouring out some, some stuff uh, behind closed doors. Uh, but, yeah, food was always a big part of it. There was a small kitchen in the back where, uh, most recently, Joey's uncle, uh, who passed away, would kind of be the lead guy there, you know, frying off Frito Misto mm-hmm. and cutlets and, and grilling sausages in the backyard and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, no, um, the, but it, it wasn't, wasn't kept it, it, was, it wasn't like the Union League, though. No. <laughs> no, I don't think it was like the Union League. No, I can. I've never I, been to the Union League, but just, just oh. you know, based on what I can guess, I don't think it was very similar. Well, I, I, w- I went to a meeting with the Union League, and I had to go in through the basement. Is that right? Oh yeah. And, and Most, not only that, but the way it ought to be. Vince Kling, who designed the city county building and building with the the um, the clothespin, all those buildings. He had the Vichy Soise and got food poisoning and ended up in the hospital. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's hard to say. They must have kept good archives because you have some wonderful old images and, and um, documents here in the book. Everything was, I think, really well preserved. Uh, one of the things that, you know, really made Joey decide to go ahead and, and reopen the club was that, you know, when he, he hadn't been there in a while and when he went and he saw all these old artifacts, you know, the old cast register, the gavel, oh, yeah. all the ledgers with their notes um, and their minutes from their meetings, I think it really and the scales. Kind of sparked something <laughs> in him and kind of like brought a lot of it back from his childhood and then he decided that, you know, he needed to be the steward of, of this, you know, great collection of, of ephemera from, you know, a time that is in many ways gone. So I think that was, that was a big reason why he decided to pursue this uh, this as a business and, and reopen it. So so how did you get involved? So I got involved uh, one day uh, my agent, she we were talking about the Laurel book because we're on the same um, the same project for that and she had, uh, we had a meeting about that and she said, you know, I have something to tell you and I said, what? And she said, Joey is reopening his family's old social club. Here's what's happening. And immediately I was like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is so cool. I can't wait to hear more about it. I can't wait to go there. I can't wait to see it. So I wound up writing an uh, an article about it for Food and Wine magazine. um, And kind of as I was researching that and spending time with Joey and seeing the club um, to to research that article, very soon thereafter, uh, Claire had approached me about possibly working on a book proposal because um, we knew or she knew and Joey knew that Polizzi was going to open and it was going to hit pretty pretty hard and pretty fast. So yeah, he's, I mean, he, he really has a lot of cred, doesn't he? He really has a lot of credentials. Yeah, you know, he uh, worked for Mark Vetri. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the chef, uh, you know, the kind of second in command at Vetri. Um you know, he left there and he studied uh, in Sicily with Anna Toscalanza. Yeah, right. Yeah, learning, learning. I think more deeply about Sicilian food. Half of Joey's family is Sicilian; the other half is Calabrese. Uh, and then he came back and he opened uh, Zeppoli, which is in Collingswood in South Jersey. It's kind of a, just a suburb of. Uh, and of that's Sicilian, isn't it? That's Sicilian. Yeah, it's a BYO um, Sicilian, straightforward. Homey, like perfectly executed food. It's my favorite Italian restaurant. In the whole oh, really? I yeah, I, I love it so much. And I've, I mean, I've been a fan of of that. You know, that's been open. I want to say eight years. So I've been a fan of that. You know, for much longer than I've been attached to to the police people. Uh-huh. 
obviously. Um, so yes, definitely well credentialed, and uh, yeah. So so they were they were pretty confident the police team was going to take off and and that a book would make a lot of sense. So they asked me to come on board and write a proposal, and I did. We we rushed the proposal in about six weeks and uh, sold it shortly thereafter. That's great. And now, talking about the food, um, mm-hmm. I thought it was really direct and straightforward of uh, him to say, Joey, to say that um, there are authentic family recipes that they still use um, in this the kitchen. Um, yeah. But but he he elevated the whole establishment from where it was when it was a decline, and he also points out that he is, after all, a trained chef, so that he mm. would sharpen up these recipes. And Correct. from the recipes I've read, he did that. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. I know there's, like, a few things that are, like, very, you know, ingredient-by-ingredient, step-by-step recreations of his mom, his aunt's, uncle's food. Mm-hmm. But, you know, by and large, most of the book, it is it is sharpened through the, the lens of a, of a trained chef. You know what I mean? That, that's his job. That's what he does. Yeah. So... I would imagine it's, it's got to be hard. I'm not a chef, but I would imagine it, it's got to be hard to take a family recipe and recreate it and not want to just tinker a little bit and sharpen up some, some rough edges. Yeah. So I think, I think that represents, you know, a good amount of what's in the book for sure. Now, is it actually open as a restaurant open to the public? No. It is not. No, no. it's no, not open it's to not. the public. Okay. Yeah. You is have it? to, you have to be a member to get in oh, or you, be the oh, guest you, of a you, member. But it, it is operating on a membership. Only basis. That's correct. Yep. Okay. That members could take in up to three guests. That's correct. Oh, I love the rules, by the way, the original rules. (laughs) They're super fun. (laughs) They're really cool. I can't remember what page they're on now. But basically, you had to shape up or ship out of the place if you didn't follow the rules. Pretty much. I mean, I, I love the one that says, you know, like, don't make too much noise like respect our neighbors oh, yeah. like, really That's good. if you if you see it it's right in it's right in the middle of a residential block it's not on a commercial strip it's not on a corner it's a it's a row home. it's a row it house. Neighbors on either side. yeah it's a row house. right so there it, i really had fun with this book because it was like memory lane I and mean, you have you know my favorite um cannoli place in here and so it made me a little nostalgic. That plus food that's not not quite my childhood because you know my background and all that cooking I grew up with was Sicilian. Uh-huh. But um, but there are lots lots and lots of familiar recipes. Now I mean, what are some of your favorites? What are some of my favorites? Well, there, I um, mean, like signature, probably every one of these recipes in this book is something that the restaurant has demand for and is named for, because that's what it. happens at these places. Yeah, so it's like the most popular dishes based on kind of what is served at Polizzi. I mean, definitely the spaghetti and crabs, it's the most popular dish at the restaurant. Uh, and that's kind of spaghetti that's tossed in a tomato sauce that uh, is really full with kind of blue crab flavor. You see, I've so never had that. I don't know why I've never had that. Yeah, it's like, I mean, you see at a lot of Italian restaurants are like crab with pasta, but usually it's just like lump crab meat like yeah. tossed through. Right. This is not that. This is the whole blue crabs, kind of what we find in New Jersey, what you'd find in Maryland. Just kind of the way that you would simmer a tomato sauce with beef bones or with pork 
you're basically just doing it with, with seafood. And it's a really traditional um, summer dish for us here in South Philly, and as well as uh, a, a traditional Christmas Eve uh, dish for Feast of the Seven Fishes. Yeah, I love the strombole, and we never used um, tomato sauce in ours either. Okay, interesting. <laughs> so, uh, did you, you? You're Sicilian, aren't you? I'm not Sicilian, no. My family is from Abruzzo and from Naples and from uh, Calabria as well. How did you get the name Erici? <laughs> uh, that, I think that is from, um, I think from the Arachis are Campania, so like outside of Naples. I'm pretty sure that's where that name uh, comes from. And the spelling was actually, it's spelled, we spell it E-R-A, yeah, but it was Erici in Italy. Was, yeah. yeah, it was I. It was I R A. Yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't that the time where somebody thought I was Frank Sinatra? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we stayed. We stayed up in the village of Erichi, which is way up in the clouds. Okay, and I, I parked my car in this little village square, and I went to fix, went to fetch it the next morning, and there was this elderly gentleman who thought that this was his patch. <laughs> you know, oh they guard him. Yeah, if you want to keep your car, yeah. (laughs) I I don't look even a little bit like Frank Sinatra. (laughs) (laughs) So So, yeah, I would say definitely spaghetti and crabs. You know that that's a really popular dish. Um, Something like the uh, the chicken cutlets or the veal cutlets that we have in the book. That's something that you know they special at Polizzi, and every time it goes on special, like they sell out really, really quickly. Um, that's something I certainly grew up eating, something Joey grew up eating, um, and I love that recipe. Other stuff like, you know, the squirrel and beans, the calamari and peas. Yeah, I've never had really calamari with peas. I guess that's yeah. what then now, that was interesting for me. Like, I've never had that either. Like, with that's not that my family With canned peas, yeah. yeah. That's not something that my family made, but it's something that's super traditional to, to Joey's family. And when we were talking about this recipe, and I was like, are you sure? Like, you can use canned peas. Like, you could just use frozen peas. And he's like, no, it's got to be canned peas. And it's funny because when you eat it, they really do have um, this sweetness. He said you put the juice in from the can. And the juice in, too. Yeah, it's wild. But, like, when you eat it, it's so delicious. Well, so, yeah, I'd like to go for pig roast sometime, Adam. Yeah. Yeah, the, the pig is pretty pretty awesome. They do that for special events and parties. And it's just perfect every time. And I love the way they take the leftover pork and they press it uh-huh. in like a tureen. And then yes. they bread it and fry it. So it's like these kind of really crispy outside, soft and creamy inside, uh, kind of like fried pork riettes almost. It's so good. <laughs> now, the, I did not know about um, pizzazz pie. But oh, yeah. I, I do know that um, we use this recipe kind of like the stromboli. Um, which mm-hmm. is use, we use two cheeses. One is Parmesan, and the other one is American cheese. And I always okay. thought that was so peculiar. And Lydia yeah. Bastianich did a book on explaining how these recipes in Italian-American uh, cooking, um, what they really were originally in Italian cooking and how they got to these, have these substitutions. And one of them is American cheese. Okay. I can't remember the name of that book she did, but anyhow, she's done so many. But that that was, I think, basically what, um, yeah. So, and um, I also, I love looking at, at the spread you have on the Seven Fishes Feast. That's yeah. lovely, beautiful. 
one of my favorites. Yeah. One of my favorite spreads in the book, for sure. And, and honey balls. I mean, that took me back. I haven't had a honey ball since I was probably a teenager. <laughs> yeah, so great. Well, you, you did a great job, and I, I wish you a lot of luck. I'm not going to make this thing with Lardo, by the way. I think the bracciole with Sunday gravy and Lardo is a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of great stuff in that book to make. I think that the recipes are really user-friendly. Um, I think that they can make people who are kind of early in their in their cooking life like just developing their skills, I think they can really make people better cooks. Um, I think there's a lot of valuable skill that Joey has in there uh, to help people, and I think that the recipes just have a ton of utility and, and are really delicious and work. And yeah, they you know, look I would like encourage you to get into them. They, they look like he's really sorted them through for, if they work. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna let you sure. into a little secret before we before we get off the air. Go ahead. And and, and scoffed at Lardo. But I, but I, I happen to know that I was with her when she had Lardo two nights in a row for dinner. <laughs> it was how it was used. In was, the it, dish. Was, it, was it? Was it? This is not the cured Lardo in this. Correct. Dish. No, this Just is raw Lardo. Fat back is what it is. Yep. In, in, yep. The, in the wonderful little burg of Luca. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, they. That's. They, yeah. That's all. So, so, so your, sec- your secret is out. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, Adam, you, you can dine out on that story. <laughs> there you go. So, Adam, Archie, what's next for you? Well, what's next for me? Um, God, I don't know. I need a nap. Vacation. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So we're like running the two books. The two books have come out. Uh, Laurel and, and Pelici. I've come out within like a month of each other. So it's been a really busy fall. Uh-huh. I am just looking forward to kind of settling back in into a groove and you know getting back to like a, my usual writing schedule possibly you know looking forward to, to more future books and, and traveling a little bit great well thanks for talking to us adam thank you guys i really appreciate it thanks for taking the time to to want to chat with me about the book okay we should sing a song we can go something like memories are made of this all right I think so. I'm not in the mood for you're singing. You're not in the mood for singing. Well, you're not in the mood for me singing either, so that's for sure. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed a little visit down memory lane, and you'll join us again same time, same place next week, and you've no idea where we'll be. Not, not, not do we, incidentally, at this stage of the game either. But we have now, we have a week to figure it out. So we'll talk to you then. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh.